I hope no one ever gets a job, ever. I think jobs are bad, okay? Careers are great. And for me, the only difference between a job and career is pretty simple. It's how you relate to time. Hello, and welcome to Start Talking, an art gallery of Windsor podcast, where we talk about everything and anything arts-related in the Windsor-Essex community. I'm Michaela, and I'm the Digital Initiatives Coordinator at the Art Gallery of Windsor. And hi, I'm Abby Lee, and I am the Audience Engagement Coordinator, uh, also at the Art Gallery of Windsor. So today we're here with Vincent Georgie, a man of many talents from the University of Windsor. Welcome, Vincent. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. I'm very happy to be here. I'm very happy, actually. We're very happy to speak with you. Let's talk first about your relatively recent new position at the University of Windsor, Associate Vice President. Please tell us how you came into that role. Sure. My specific role is Associate Vice President External. So I've got four pillars that I focus on in my role. So all things that are marketing, public relations, and media relations, all things that work with our alumni, all things that work with our fundraisers, and then all things that work with our government officials and government partners. So it's a very externally facing role, which is great. I absolutely love that. I've got to admit, I've probably been far less strategic in my career than people probably assume. I tend to go at whatever role I'm in very hard and sort of let everything else sort of you know, come as, as it does. Um, so I've been at the University of Windsor 12 years. I came as a marketing professor right at the start. And then about four years in, I was asked to lead our graduate programs at the Dutch School of Business. So ran our MBA program and, and put together uh, a joint program with between business and engineering, helped revive our law and business programs. And then I was given the terrific opportunity to become the director of the School of Creative Arts at SoCA when we were moving downtown for the historic move to our downtown campus, which I love. I mean, as you both know, my expertise is in the marketing of the film industry. So I'm very, very passionate about all things marketing and all things arts specifically related to film. So I was I was leading at SoCA for about three and a half years. And then I was asked if I'd be interested in the opportunity to take on this role. I love this new role. There's no question. It's content I believe in. I think what it reminds me of too is, you know, when you have the sincere good fortune to work with people, but also for an institution or organization that you actually believe in, that you're actually like, this does good things, there are good people here doing good work, like that, that can't be undervalued. I, I really like, I don't know how people do it if you actually don't think the organization you're part of matters or if you don't think it does good things or you don't think its intentions are sincere. The one thing I find motivating is like I, I firmly believe in the University of Windsor. Um, I, I love everything about it. I'm, I'm happy I get to do things where I'm like I really believe in what we're doing and I believe very much in the work we're doing at SOCA and very much in this role and 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 I, I really love it. I really really do. It, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. There, there's no doubt about it. The advice I always try to give people as much as possible in career, I hope no one ever gets a job ever. I think jobs are bad. Okay. Careers are great. And for me, the only difference between a job and career is pretty simple. It's how you relate to time. So for me, the pleasure of my day, you know, today we're meeting at, you know, it's three o'clock. I'm like, okay, great. I'm meeting with Abby Lee and Michaela at three o'clock. Perfect. And then I've got a meeting at four and I got something at five, I got something at night. It's fine. It's just, it's signposting. I'm just, I just sort of know where I have to be in my day and my evening. I think if you're in a job, it's always about counting down until it's over. And I would never want that for people. We all have days you're tired, you'd rather watch Netflix or go for a walk with your dog. That I understand completely. But I'm talking day in, day out. 
the minute you're waking up, it's all about how, how soon is your job done or over. You've got a job and that's not a career. And you could have a job with a very prestigious organization, get tons of money or whatever. And you could have a career where you might be making very modest money and very you know modest organization, but it's, it's how you relate to time. And I always hope people have careers and not jobs. I wholeheartedly agree with you. I've never heard it framed in that sense, but so often you hear of people who are in their work and it's exactly what you said. They're saying, oh, it's it's October, only a couple more months till it's December. And then we get the Christmas break and then only this many more years until I retire, which retirement, if that is something that you're looking for, I think it's always nice to have something in the future to look forward to. But if you're not looking forward to the present moment, that's concerning because you're just counting down the days until so many years have gone by. And if you can do something, which Vincent, you've spoken about the great motivation that you have in your work, if you have that in your career, then you get to, well, you know, while it is a lot of work, you get to really yeah. enjoy it as well. You, you don't want to count down the days of your life. I notice a trend, and I hope you two will agree with me. I've noticed Monday shows up every week. And I think if you're, if, if you're in a role where you have that sadness Sunday at about 4 p.m. where you're like, oh boy, here we go again, you're probably in a job. And while the weekend is great, if you look at like, okay, cool, Monday, we're doing this, we're doing that and the other, and you've got a positive relationship to what a Monday is, you're probably in a career. There's really nothing more valuable that you could ask for than a career that you enjoy every day of your life. Because as much as you may love your family and value your health, the fact is you're going to spend at least 40 hours a week yeah. doing something to make a living. So you better yes. make sure that you enjoy it for the next, you know, yes. who knows how many decades, right? Yes. And being realistic about, of course, even when you have a great career, of course, there are days you're tired. Of course, there's days you're frustrated. Of course, there's days that you want to watch Netflix. Absolutely. There's no doubt, but it, that can't be the majority. No, right. You want to have something that fulfills you, something yeah. that, that's rewarding. Yeah. And actually that kind of leads into a question that I have for you, because I know a lot of people who are listening to this podcast, we, we've interviewed people who have careers in the arts and they're yeah. kind of wondering how they can turn their artistic passion and talent into a career for themselves. So they never have to have a job and things of course don't always turn out the way you expect them or the way yeah. you think you want them to go but I think a lot of people have a pretty clear idea of what they don't want to be doing with their lives and about what they uh, want to avoid so do you have any advice for people who are trying to get into an artistic career some sort mm -hmm. of career in the in the arts that maybe their parents or society or whoever is discouraging them from because it's um, more competitive and not yeah. always the highest paying so for me, I've always been on the business side of the arts and that's the part that I love and I've always wanted to. I am not an artist. I don't have that level of talent. I do not want to make a film. I do not want to play music. I do not want to paint or draw. I know those are all very limited concepts, but it's not what my interests are at all. And I wouldn't even try. I just, I just it's, it's, it would never even occur to me. Uh, so I've firmly been on the business side, which interests me because for me, fundamentally, I'm motivated by seeing people engage with the arts. And if I can help make sure there's engagement with the artist, that excites me very, very much. I don't need to be the artist. So that's one thing I'd say to you right off the hop that I think has been difficult in the art sector. I don't think that film is particularly different from visual art or, or music in this case. 
Too often, organizational leaders or people that work on, on the business side, whether you're in operations or marketing or admin, they've come to it almost by accident. Like they didn't really want to do that. They actually wanted to perform or they actually wanted to create or they actually wanted to you know, make films or, or, or make art. And that can be tricky, really tricky, because then there's a sense of your work, you're coming at it as, well, this is my second choice. And that's not ideal. I, I think something that's helped me love my career, but also I hope be as good as I possibly can in it, I've always chosen this path. This is actually what I've studied for, and this is my professional discipline. And I think that makes a difference in many organizations. Um, and there's, you know, there's different skill sets for different people, but I think that can make a real difference when you're able to come to the table and that my profession is marketing. I'm a professional marketer. So when, I, when I'm approaching something like this, I'm not approaching it as, okay, I need to quickly understand how marketing works. This is actually my discipline. In terms of people looking for, for careers, and I think you have to sort of figure out, one, depending what you want to do and, and whether you're interested in creating or making or writing or what have you, knowing you very likely are going to put together a career with multiple revenue streams, that you're probably not going to have a traditional 40-hour week career, and that's fine. And there should be no judgment on that. That's fine absolutely positively. Okay. Any business person would tell you multiple revenue streams is where it's at. So if let's say every week you needed to make $500. Okay, great. Well, maybe that's from one place or maybe two places, or maybe that's from 15 projects. All of them are fine. It, none of that is a reflection on someone being excellent or less great or whatever, not whatsoever. So it's sort of knowing how do you put together different things going on that all together allow you to have a great life, cover your bills and, 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 and have some money to go and hang out with your friends. That's really that. So knowing that that's part of it. I think if someone was really looking for something very stable and very sort of structured and whatever, this is probably not the right even industry for you. But I, I wouldn't judge myself on that at all. I think people get caught up with, well, my friend over here, well, they're making, you know, $40,000 doing this thing over here. That's great. What, what, how does that relate to you? You know what I mean? I think that's an important piece. What people I think need to be conscious of is these things do take time. And my advice would be, no matter what your practice is, you deserve to be paid to practice it. And you must ask to be paid appropriately. And you must demand it. And you must be okay with saying that I'm declining the opportunity if there's no pay or if the pay is not where you think it should be. I firmly, strongly, loudly encourage it. Talking money is a cool conversation, okay? I grew up with a dad as a banker. So we talk about money all the time. Money was not a scary topic. Money is not a dirty topic. Money is not a mean topic. It's a topic, it's a cool thing. It is very legit to know that if you, yes, I am interested in being commissioned to do this. Yes, I am interested in performing this. Yes, I am interested in writing an article for that. Absolutely. Let me tell you what my rates are. Let me tell you what my expectation is in terms of pay. And if that works for you, I think this opportunity sounds great. And that was something that, that I tried in my own way to help students at SOCA with is we hire students. So one of my policies at SOCA was any of our students were engaging in any capacity, they're being paid for this. So, okay, so if we're having concerts or events or there's a recital or there, there, there's a party going on or we want to have students there for open house or whatever, they need to be paid. But what I tried to do is I would get the students to tell me, I'm like, well, we'll you tell me, well, what is it you charge? I'm interested in hiring you, but what, what's your going rate? Getting people used to saying, and I even got one of my students and he did a great job. And he, after he finished performing, he came up to me at the end. He's like, okay, like, 
so how does payment work? I'm like, I'm really happy you're asking that. So in that case, I'm like, yeah, we submitted your hours and you get paid next week. Or another case, it's like, yes, we're going to pay you. I'll actually bring the check to the event. That's a cool conversation. And I would cut off any idea of artists working for free. You can do it if you love it. If you choose to love it and you want to do something, you go right ahead. But talking about money and having realistic expectations on what you can charge and what your work is worth is very important. Very, very important. And get used to that fast. I've had to, as I'm listening to you, actively stop myself from going like, woo, and cheering at what you're saying. First of all, the idea that if you're bringing in multiple revenue streams, that you know, somehow you haven't made it, that that's a complete myth. I've seen that and witnessed that. And oftentimes that is what we all see are the famous artists, the actors who are bringing in millions of dollars to do one action film. But there's so many others who are very successful and content and who might be working in many different areas. And who's to say that's not a success just because it's different from what we always see. That's the first gem that I think is amazing. And also what you're talking about with advocating for payment, there is still so much of a barrier, I think, in the arts industry in terms of people being expected to do things for free to get exposure. But so many, and this I think also happens with internships. A few years ago, I was in the States for a little bit, and I'm not sure if this is similar in I think this is the case also in Canada, but I remember being there and seeing these internships that were being posted for students to undertake 35 hours per week. This was in Mm -hmm. the film industry, Mm -hmm. unpaid. Mm -hmm. How are people supposed to manage that kind of schedule? So when you're saying, you know, you've got to kind of have that conversation and advocate and that it's hard, but artists deserve to have that conversation. They deserve to be paid fairly. I mean, of course, Michaela and I, we work at the Art Gallery of Windsor. So we're like, yes, all for that. Artists need to be paid and they need to be paid fairly. So that, that that was so cool to hear you speak to that. It goes both ways. It is totally okay for someone to say, well, that's not in line with my budget. Then there's no problem. Then we'll see you next time. There's no problem with that. That's okay. Or, or, or you're looking for, you know, your, let, let's say, you know, X budget. I'm looking for, you know, I'm hiring musicians. Okay, great. Well, then I realize my budget affords me a 30 minute performance as opposed to an hour. Then I have that option to hire you or not. Again, money is an easy topic. It's a good topic. Not a scary topic. I think that's important. Is there value? In internships and experiential learning opportunities, these types of things, I think there is. I think you have to decide at what point you need those to actually get some experience and at what point you're ready to transition out of them. I really, I want to be clear, I, I do think there's value in them up to a point. But then at one, some point, much sooner than later, hopefully, you're like, no, I think I've got some experience. I've got, I've, I've it depends what your, your goal is. I partook in a, in a paid co-op in university, so that went well. I also part- partook in an unpaid internship, which gave me the skills that I needed. I knew I wasn't getting paid, but I actually needed the experience. I actually needed that, but I chose that that's what my priority was as opposed to having someone else choose for me. Yeah, I think what, what happens commonly with a lot of internships is at the most they'll promise course credit or something like that. And you'll end up putting a lot more work into it than you would for a normal course. And, you know, that's that's fine if that's a student's choice because it's going to be more engaging than most schoolwork would be. But a lot of the times I've noticed that instead of actually 
helping people to get a leg up in the industry by giving them that experiential learning and, you know, skill building, what people will do is take advantage of skills that students already do have, saying this is still good experience for you because just because you're being associated with us, with our organization, with our company, whatever. But really, if you're going to have someone work almost full-time hours for you, you need to be offering them something more than association and a reference on a resume. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree. I mean, I think if you're actually doing it for course credit or part of something that advances you in a tangible way, that's up to you to decide if it works or not. But just exclusively on a letter of reference or by association, again, not not what I would choose, but I mean, it's up to people to do what they want. The ultimate message I'm trying to get at is if you're if you want to have a career in this, and you certainly can make money a cool topic, make money an easy topic. I love talking about money. It's not a scary, why is this scary? Why is it taboo? It's not taboo at all. People get really intimidated, I think, by money conversations. There's this pressure from society to kind of devalue yourself in order to make yourself seem more valuable. It's a very strange. Yeah, Yeah. this is a good lesson for me too, because I'm definitely (laughs) in the the camp of, oof, talking about money is not easy. So this is a good lesson. The The more you talk about it, the more comfortable you become with it. That is, that is very true. Um, I, or at least I imagine that will be very true once I put this into practice. So thank you. I'd love to kind of shift some gears and go back to what you were talking about, Vincent, of the experience of people who are taking on multiple projects, because I feel like that definitely applies to you. I mean, you, again, the Associate Vice President of the University of Windsor, you were a marketing professor, and you're also the executive director and chief programmer of Windsor International Film Festival, which, first off, wow, um, as a newbie to Windsor, I'm so excited to partake in this. I think film festivals are such a great hub of community connection, but I'd love to hear more of your experience with WIF and why you felt like Windsor was the place to host a film festival of the sort. Yeah, ha- happy to talk about that. Um, so, and I, I mean, I do wear a lot of hats, but I, again, I, I try to always make sure I only get involved with stuff I believe in. I sort of work every day, all day, seven days a week. I've always got stuff going on. And thankfully, the vast majority of it I'm really into. And I really try to limit the stuff that I don't really want to do. So I came to Windsor 12 years ago from downtown Montreal. And WIF had already existed. WIF was already up and running for four years. You know, I want to be clear, I didn't found WIF. There's already a team in place that, that did that. And I, I really saw, I think, very clear opportunity for, I think, for what WIF could be. Just from a community perspective, I thought, you know, WIF should be the go-to place for community conversations around film and bring people the really the best films that, that, that are out there in a given year and allow people to connect through film and then also impact a community, specifically the downtown community. So WIF is very committed to the downtown and bringing people down here and benefiting the community, the quality of life, all the businesses. So that's really a big thing. Um, also knowing that, that Windsor is, just market research-wise, Windsor is the second biggest uh, film-consuming market in all of Ontario outside of Toronto. So people here watch a lot of movies. That's fact. That's actually always been the case. So I was interested when I first got here, I'm like, so there's not a traditional art house cinema here. So you have your, your Devonshire Malls of the world, which is fine, not judging, it just sort of is. So you're only essentially showing your top eight or 10 films at the box office. And then you have the festival, I'm like, well, where are the different art houses? Because I was used to having many, many art house cinemas in Montreal. And I realized there weren't any at the time that I was living here. And I said, well, that clearly is the gap that WIF needs to fill. 
because there's an appetite for all these fantastic films from around the world that that uh, that people are not seeing. So taking that, I think, I'm, and with the work of our army of people, I mean, WIF is 12 months a year of work. It is an enormous commitment by, by, our, by our team. There's no doubt about it. We've taken the festival from selling about 2,500 tickets back 12 years ago to this past in 2019 that are right before COVID, we sold over 42,000 paid tickets. That's really, really important. And that really shows community engagement and it shows community interest, which I think is important and also bringing people from farther away. Um, and, and, you know, I love the fact that we can be showing a, a Romanian film at 9 a.m. on a Tuesday and we've got 80 people in the room to do it. Like, that's amazing to me. Like that, that never gets old to me. Or showing a documentary that talks to us about, you know, healthcare or, or, or having a community conversation. At last year's festival, you know, we, we showed the film Prey, which is about uh, sex abuse in the Catholic Church. And then much of that abuse had happened locally. I remember it was premiered on a Wednesday night here and went in the Capitol Theater. I mean, the balcony was full. Like there are 650 people in this room right now on a Wednesday night who are here to talk about a film about sex abuse. And we're going to have a very difficult conversation as a community. It's nights like that that I'm like, this is why we do this. This matters. And that's for me, that's what's transformational about film is, is the conversations it creates. Our founder of the festival, Mark Biscariel, said the end of the film is the beginning of the conversation. And I think that's very true. We try to be really conscious of it. So very, very proud of what WIF is. And I think we're at right now, slightly over 50% of the films we show are not even in English. You know, because like, why would you ever assume the best films in the world are in English language? You know, very, very proud of that. That's so exciting. I fully agree with you, Vincent. When I was living in Kingston, we also have a film festival. Yes, and... yes, I've been to that festival. Yay! It's, it's wonderful. It's, it's, it's such a lovely March. festival. It is every March. Yeah, the past yeah, couple yeah. Of years very were... good. Yeah, the past. Oh, well, thank you. Very good. Shout out to KCFF. Um, The past couple of years are online, but um, I had the great pleasure of working there a few years back. And I was just staggered that people were cheerfully coming into the screening room at 9 a.m. on a Saturday. Like, I'm here to see a movie. I'm like, my goodness, like people are waking up early on a weekend to see these movies. And it was just so incredible to see. Like I'd never seen so many people in Kingston fill up in one space to see movies. Of course, there's a lot of appreciation for good yeah. movies, but it was just such an amazing thing to bring the community together. So I love kind of what you're saying about with and how amazingly the the community is connecting with the movies that are being put on. And also, I heard that last year, WIF went on, but it went on in a drive-in movie format. Am I accurate here? And second, like, can we anticipate more drive-in movies to come? Are you allowed to speak to that? Let me give you you folks a scoop. So when we made the very difficult choice of not doing the festival in 2020, it came down to just being responsible. And we're like, there is no way we can start planning this safely. No one has a crystal ball. We certainly didn't. So that went off the table um, in the winter of 2020. We said we just, because WIF takes a full year to plan. That festival needs 52 weeks to plan. And we were now like three months into planning and we're like, we're getting to the point where we're going to start making purchases and that we're like, wait a minute, what is this going to look like? But right away, um, it was never an option that we were doing nothing. That option died on the table very fast. We were like, if we're not doing festival, people would be still looking forward to festival. We had people telling us, well, all this COVID stuff is difficult, but thankfully in the fall, whiff will happen. In the back of my mind, I'm like, okay. 
So we, we knew if we're not doing a festival, we have to do something out of duty to the community. We felt very strongly about that. Our whole team did. So that's how we decided to do the drive-in because it made a lot of sense. I mean, culturally, we understand that, you know, you can watch a movie in a car with your friends and, or your family or whoever's in your, in your bubble and that, that could work. Um, so we did that last year for two and a half weeks right on the waterfront, which I really thought was special because drive-ins are normally in the middle of a cornfield. And I've been, I love drive-ins. I've been to many, many drive-ins. And I love them. Um, but we thought it'd be very special to do a beautiful drive-in and also one that's right on the Canada-US border, to which we found out after the fact we're the only driving in the world that goes on, on on the border of two countries. I had no idea. That was shared to us by the Consul General of Detroit. I'm like, okay, fantastic. Who knew? Um, so we really loved doing that for what it, it meant to the community. I mean, obviously, you have to change some of the films you're showing. For example, you know, just because of sight lines of the vehicles, you can't do subtitled films. Um, so just little things like that, that people might not realize. Um, so we had to make, make some sort of changes in that. So drive-in was never meant to replace festival, but it was meant to be a new event that people could enjoy. But to your good question, I believe about us doing it again, it became screamingly clear to us last year, every night when we were collecting the radios back from the cars departing, the comment we got constantly, all we heard the whole time was, that was really fun. You're doing this again, right? I like it. One of our core principles with the WIF team has always been just listen to the audience. The audience knows. If you just listen to what the audience is telling you, nine times out of 10, the audience is right, okay? And the audience told us very loud and clear, we like this and this is not just a COVID thing. We just like this. So nothing official to announce yet, but I would say our team is definitely working on bringing driving back for this summer. Definitely, definitely. And you, you've heard it here first. Yeah, de definitely. That's absolutely in the books right now. We're planning on making a few exciting changes to it that will make it even a little bit something more. And then we've got another surprise event this summer that we're working on too. We feel really, really good about it because people love it. Uh, and I think it gives people hope and it allows people, allows people to connect and allows us people to do it in a safe way, which is obviously key. We had to do the whole thing. And that I've got to say from an organizing standpoint, drive-in was very easy to run. It really was. Every night, once that film started, it was no problem. It was quite relaxing. Organizing that drive-in during a health pandemic was one of the most challenging things I think I've ever done, ever. Drive-ins look simple to organize. They are not. They're, they're, they're really not. And But we have a great, very dedicated team, and we did it. But like, oh my goodness, especially during a health pandemic. We became uh, protocol and PPE experts uh, pretty fast, but well worth it. But people were so happy and that's what matters is that people felt happiness around it. That's wonderful. Well, I'm so excited that this is a possibility to happen again, because oh, yeah. I was sitting back home thinking, you know, I would go and like sit on a cardboard box in the yard and like watch a movie on my small phone screen if I could sure. do it safely sure. with other sure. people. So to be able to have the drive and I'm like, I'm there. I don't know about you, Michaela. We can do a distanced drive-in movie <laughs> adventure at some point this summer. Fingers crossed. That would be fun. Just like two cars over from each other. Hey, yeah. <laughs> we're both here. Yeah. <laughs> we had some cars do that last year of these coordinated vehicles showing up that everyone was distant, but the fact that they could wave and kind of be there together. Yeah. Always nice if you have a convertible too. I know that's not most people, but it's no, it's not. It's not. But hey, if you've got one, you knock yourself out. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I had no idea. I would have also thought it was pretty simple, you know, drive in, like it kind of, a lot of it takes care of itself, but the thing is that it COVID looks, is it teaching looks us, simple. right? Yeah. Oh yeah. The, the COVID piece for sure. And even like the screen that we did, we, we built a giant LED wall. 
So we had, it wasn't done with a, we didn't use a projector, we used an LED wall. So that LED wall weighed nearly seven tons. So we hung seven tons from the top point on an outdoor stage. Oh yeah. Oh, there, there was, yeah. That's Lots to amazing. it. Not for, not, for, not for the faint-hearted, not for the faint-hearted, I can promise you. Oh, thank goodness everything worked out with that. It did. It worked out very, very well. Our team, we have a very, very strong team. We really, really do. And again, I'd say what, what unites all of us with WIF, we all believe in it. There's no question it's what unites all of us. We all fundamentally believe in the power of film. We fundamentally believe in what WIF does for the community. So it's, it's easy to stay motivated with it. That's so wonderful. I think for me when you're talking about WIF and as someone who's been taken along in this conversation, you've been speaking of your experiences in marketing and then also in film, I feel like a really huge tie between those two disciplines, which I don't really think are as separate as maybe is thought of, is the storytelling. I mean, film tells such beautiful stories. You're completely immersed within a one to two to sometimes three hour period. And when you're in the process of marketing something, you're also kind of trying to tell a story about why what you're marketing is interesting, why it's valuable. And I'm wondering from your perspective, as someone who's involved in both disciplines, are there any stories right now that you feel like people are particularly connecting with in the community, either through a marketing lens or a film lens? And do you think if we had like a crystal ball to look into the future, maybe after things settle down with COVID, will those kind of stories be the same as the ones people are connecting yeah. with today? It's a big question. I think yeah, I asked like a, three questions. That is a big question. <laughs> I like it. There's a lot there to unpack for sure. I would say what sort of struck me is So documentary film tends to pick up the world very quickly. Whatever's happening in the world, you tend to see pick up a year to 18 months after. So I'll be very interested, even our colleagues at at Hot Docs, which is the biggest international documentary festival in the world, out of Toronto, they've already got some films for this coming April, which are some COVID-related films about the world and COVID. And, 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 you know, documentary moves faster, right? So so that's going to be interesting in talking about that. I'm going to be interested to see what we do with a film that comes out 5, 10, 15 years from now that is just referencing life in 2018 or 2019 or 2020, but then for whatever scenes in the film take part in 2020, oh yeah, that's normal, that's right, everyone was on the computer, everyone was walking around with masks. Like having it just part, like right now, if if you were... um, you know, showing a film from the 1970s or 80s or whatever, you'd expect the clothing to look different. You just would assume that's what went on. You know what I mean? Um, or if you're watching a film that, that where 9-11 is part of it or, or the year 2001 is part of it, obviously there's all sorts of you know, major, you know, political context to it. It'll be interesting to see when we get a bit of distance from it, when anything to do with 2020 or start of 2021 in a film, you're like, oh yeah, of course, people are walking around with masks. That's what was happening. Um, that's going to be interesting. The bigger piece I would wonder about in terms of not just like where I think we're going, maybe I hope where we're going, and I hope film can, can help us with this. I think my concern for where we're at right now in the world, for again, for, for whatever, it's, whatever it's worth, is I think we've stopped listening to each other. I think people argue and fight. The things that people say to each other online you would never say to a person to their face. The, the behaviors that I see, I, I'm, I'm openly not a fan of social media. It's not where I live. I, I just, I'm, I'm astounded at the way many folks conduct themselves online, but I'm also astounded to what point 
we set ourselves up in echo chambers and then you get the same 26 people agreeing with what you've said and you just keep reinforcing what you've said. And it's amazing with different people on different sides of an issue only become further certain about proving their own point. And I worry too, as someone that, that, that is always identified as a liberal, uh, I worry sometimes that we are very open-minded as long as you agree with me. We are so open-minded to diversity which is the world that I want to live in. But we are not open-minded to diversity of ideas. I don't think we are. And that concerns me. It makes me nervous. It makes me really, really nervous sometimes that, that, that I think our own open-mindedness and liberalism is quite selective. And I hope we see some films that will help open that up and tackle that for us. It's complicated and it's hard, but uh, I think we all, including myself, I think we all spend a lot of time with a lot of people online that agree with us. And, and when people disagree, it's one thing to disagree respectfully. It's another thing to disagree disrespectfully, but it's actually a whole other thing when I don't agree, therefore you can't have that opinion or you can't exist. That's scary to me. It's really scary to me. It scares me more than when people are disrespectful to each other. Yeah, that's I'm sure anxiety inducing for for a bunch of other people, right? Not not just you or us or for sure. You know, anyone who's kind of scared of the diversity of ideas kind of being funneled down. Um and yeah, I think no matter what end of the political spectrum you're on, like people do love to live in those echo chambers because they're yeah. safe, right? That's where they feel safe. For sure. And some of them are algorithms and then you don't realize it, but based on, you know, your, your Twitter account or based on Facebook and algorithms, you're actually encountering more and more messages that reinforce what you're saying or they're vilifying someone else. And that that's where, and for me, what I hope, I think that's where artists will always be the leaders in changing that. Because I always believe in the power of artists and of art, always, always. And I, I think it's up to all of us in our own ways that we contribute to push beyond that. Be because I, I think we've all experienced nastiness online, of course, we've all seen it. I think we can all recognize that some of the stuff that goes on online, you're like, that person, you'll know the person, you're like, that person would never say that to that person in person. But now that's anonymous or online, then people are, you know, run wild. We need to make sure if we're, we're, we're describing ourselves as open-minded and progressive, we need to live that in all different ways, shapes, and forms, including diversity of ideas. Shutting people down and canceling people is even scarier to me than people who are just rude to each other. Yeah, I think there's, at least this is what my hope anyway, is that yeah. there's always an opportunity for education through disagreement and yes. how... If you're shutting each other down, of course, that's just going to result in more defensiveness from either side, which is not a really great learning environment. I think sometimes maybe people want to learn and they're just not sure of the language that is, yeah. you know, relevant to use for a particular issue. Or sometimes people just come from very different life experiences and in conversation, they find maybe they're not too far off from each other, but initially yeah. with their introductory ideas, they seem on very different planes. So I think that's one of the really wonderful things, though, about film festivals is that I know, especially in the Netflix culture, mm -hmm. you're getting all of these recommendations that are exactly like things that you've already yes, seen before. Yes. When you I go think to that's a film, terrible, actually. It's, yeah, it kind of reinforces and you're not getting to see other things that you might be interested in. But then at a film festival, you're kind of thinking, okay, well, I've, I've got this pass, so I've got these six tickets. Well, yeah. I guess I'm just going to go and see 
these films I wouldn't normally see because this is a limited time thing or, yeah. oh no, I can only go see a movie on a Friday night or a Saturday morning and this is what's on. So I guess I'm seeing that and it really opens up the conversation and people's minds to new ideas. I think that's really powerful. You, you nailed that with the film festival. We see people take much more risk in what they're watching because you're sort of in the right environment for it. And if you're there, especially with our pass holders, you know, um, who have got an all access pass, well, they're there and they've got free time and it's 2 p.m. What's playing at 2 p.m.? They're walking in. And that's great. That that's absolutely that's absolutely great. And that that that's that's where you expose people to enough realities and agreement and disagreement and just start thinking about the world. You know, I've had many people come into films and talk to me and sort of say, I'm gonna really have to think about what that film said, and I'm not sure where I feel about that. I said, that's fine. Great. I want you to live with that. That's okay. Don't decide right now in the hallway. I'm fine if you need six months to think about that film, about how it made you feel or not. Did it make you question something, make you challenge yourself? Did it make you push yourself a bit? I think that's terrific. And in half the time, I don't even really know what they got out of it or what issue it pushed them on in one direction or another. It doesn't matter. I don't have, I personally don't have to understand it. But if that person's sort of saying, oh, that you know got me into different territory and I have to rethink my thoughts on something, I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm just, just thrilled about that. I, I'm thrilled when people respectfully disagree. I'm thrilled by that. It's totally okay. Just disagree. We're not, and it doesn't mean they're a bad person. No, it doesn't mean I disagree with everything they say all day, every day, in every way. No, I think there's nothing wrong with just saying, no, I'm not, I, I'm not with you on that one. That's okay. You move on to something else. Yeah, absolutely. I think that concept of respectful disagreement is one of the hardest things to wrap your head around, especially now, but one of the most important if you're going to really be able to learn from each other. And of course, we've talked so much about film today in many different shapes and forms. And we just had the Golden Globe. I'm saying we as if like the art gallery just held the Golden Globe. Yeah, yeah. The world had the Golden Globes uh, happen not too long ago. And you have so much knowledge of films in the film industry. So I'm wondering because I know you have Oscar predictions. So would you mind sharing some of those? And did they change by what happened in the Golden Globes? Yeah, so I'm ha happy to share my predictions. My, my predictions didn't change. They'll let you in on a bit of an industry secret. There are zero people that vote for the Globes that also vote for the Oscars. They are 100% separate groups. So because of it, Golden Globes tend to be more about promoting titles or getting Academy voters who vote for the Oscars to prioritize watching certain films. So I don't tend to view the results of the Golden Globes as being predictive as much as it is putting a film on, on Oscar voters' radar. Uh, so, so, but in terms of my predictions, uh, and there is some commonality with the Globes on this one. Overall, right now, I would probably say I would expect Best Picture to be either Nomadland with Frances McDormand, which is really great, or Minari, the, the beautiful, beautiful um, film with uh, Stephen Ewan. It, it, it's really well done. I think Best Picture is really between those two. I, for Best Actress, I'm pretty sure I would put my money down on Carrie Mulligan for Promising Young Woman. Best Actor, I think, is close between Chadwick Boseman from Mabel Rainey's Black Bottom, but I think there's a real shot that Riz Ahmed from Sound of Metal he plays a drummer who's losing his hearing. He's very good in it. I wouldn't be surprised. Those are sort of the major category ones. And what I would say overall, the biggest shout out I could give, I thought the best film of last year easily was Promising Young Woman. I thought that film was extraordinary in what it wanted to talk about, extraordinary in how it handled comedy 
extraordinary how it handled tragedy and dark humor and violence. That film has a real edge to it. And I thought it was a risky, risky film. And to imagine that Emerald Fennell, this was her first film as a director writer. It's moments like that that always confirm I'll never be a filmmaker. You know, what do you mean that was her first film? So she wrote a script for the first time, shot a film for the first time, that's what she made? Like, it's, it's, it's astoundingly good, you know? Um, that's a really good film. And it, it's challenging. It definitely stays with you. But I've seen that film three times. And after each time, the person I watched, we did online screenings together. The person I was with, we probably talked three, four hours after. Because there was so much going on. That's a great sign. That's a great sign when I'm like, I need to talk about this. And one other time I actually watched the film alone and I spent a couple of hours online reading and learning. That's, that's where film I think can be powerful. That's incredible. Promising Young Woman has been on my list for a little bit now and I'm really Messi wanting to get me, to it. Please message me as soon as you've seen it. I, I will. It'll be a three hour conversation again. And with pleasure, with pleasure. Yes, I, I love Carrie Mulligan. I've seen her in a few other films and she's just amazing. And everything she picks, it seems, is just top quality. So, yeah. um, all excellent recommendations and we'll see we'll see what happens at the Oscars so I'm looking forward to it yeah. and also just want to say we're so happy and grateful to have had this conversation with you to have learned so much we appreciate it so much I appreciate it as well it's my real pleasure yes thank you very much for joining us and hopefully we can have you on the podcast again sometime you know within the next year or so we we love to talk to you I love a good sequel Thank you so much for listening to Start Talking. We hope that you keep talking about all of the things that we've spoken about today and all of the art in our local Windsor-Essex community, even long after our podcast episode is over. If you're interested in finding out more about the Art Gallery of Windsor, you can find us on our website at www.agw.ca or you can follow us on social media at AGW401. Have a great day, everyone. Stay safe and be well.